Acts chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 8 through 15. I've been preaching through uh, the book of Acts. Uh, this book was written by uh, a man named Luke. He actually wrote two books in the Bible. He wrote the book of Luke, which is a book of facts about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Luke then wrote volume two, which is this book right here, the book of Acts, which covers the facts, the, the events that happened after the ascension of Jesus up into heaven. So it's all about the apostles and how they then went out to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And we are now... In In Acts chapter 6, we'll start reading in just a little bit here in verse 18. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, we just praise you this morning that we are no longer slaves to fear in Christ Jesus. That you have set us free. You love us. Father, as, as an earthly father has compassion upon his children, so you, Father, have compassion on those who fear you. You're a good father for your children. You've set us free. You will always protect us, watch over us in Christ Jesus. And we just thank you, Father, for every opportunity to open the Bible. What a precious gift this is to have the Bible, Lord. To have your inspired word to lead us as as a firm foundation underneath our feet. And so, Father, as we open your word this morning, we just pray for grace. Father, this portion of the book of Acts, you just open it up to our hearts and you would encourage us. You'd strengthen us. You'd just fill us with truth by your spirit. Father, you'd just wash away anything that would not be truth, Lord God, and you would just plant us upon the rock-solid truth of your word. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you, if you are here this morning and you, you have been a Christian for any length of time, then you have probably heard of something called the prosperity gospel. And I will just go on record to say it is a false Christian teaching. One of the principles of this, this prosperity gospel, one thing the supporters of the prosperity gospel teach, is that the righteous will always prosper in this life. If you are in right standing with God through faith in Christ, and if you just have enough faith, well, you'll be prosperous, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and on down the road. And if you don't prosper as a Christian, if you lose your job, you go broke, you get sick, you may have a terminal disease, well, you are then either not very righteous, or you just don't have enough faith. And many Christians have been infected with that type of thinking. A 2006 Time Magazine survey found that out of all the professing Christians in America, 61% believe that God wants them to be prosperous. 61% believe that God wants them to be prosperous, and they believe that if you are not prosperous, well, the problem lies not with God, but with you. And as a pastor, I do hear that type of thinking occasionally. I hear it from our own body. It's very subtle. It sounds something like this. I'm having a really hard time right now in my life. I lost my job, maybe, or I have a sickness. God must be punishing me for something. And yes, God can lovingly discipline 
correct his people at times through circumstances. God might take me through a trial to show me some sort of sin in my heart, but to make that direct one-to-one connection that if I'm not prospering at this time, well, I must not be very righteous or I don't have enough faith. Well, you just can't do that because there's one big problem with that prosperity gospel teaching. It, it, It is simply not biblical. It's just not. Yes, those who are righteous, those who trust in Christ, they will always prosper in the next life. In heaven, sure. But the Bible does not teach that you will always prosper in this life. God does not want many of His Christians to be prosperous because it would ruin their faith. He doesn't want it for every Christian. No, on the contrary, the the Bible doesn't teach you always prosper. The Bible actually teaches the exact opposite. That that the righteous, those with a living faith in Christ, those seeking hard to follow and obey Christ, well, they will often suffer in this life. Even those with the strongest of faith. It's just all over the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we are destined for afflictions. Acts 14.22, through many afflictions, we inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's one thing that Job in the Bible, he struggled with for 40 chapters. He was a righteous man who was suffering. And throughout the entire book, Job was crying out, Why God? Why do the righteous suffer? It's one thing you find all through the Psalms in the Bible. If you read through 150 Psalms in the Bible, you don't walk away thinking, oh yeah, the righteous will prosper. No, you walk away thinking the wicked prosper. And all the psalmists are saying, God, why? Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper, but the righteous so often seem to suffer? It's, it's all through It's all through the Bible. And and you know one place where we see very, very clearly that the righteous do suffer? Right here in the book of Acts. You know, the the book of Acts, it starts with the 12 apostles and these other early Christians. And from the very get-go, all the way through the book, they suffer. Peter and John, Acts 4, imprisoned and threatened. All the apostles then, Acts 5, imprisoned and, and beaten. And now starting right here in Acts 6, going all the way through Acts 7, we now hear the story of a man named Stephen. And what do we see here with Stephen? You know what we see? The righteous suffer. The the righteous suffer. We'll just read the first part of Stephen's story here today. Let's go ahead and read it starting in verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. 
and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And we, 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 we see three things in this story here. Three things that, that, that really contradict this prosperity gospel idea that the righteous will always prosper in this life. One, we see Stephen's character. Two, we see his suffering. But then three, we see his vindication. Character, suffering, vindication. First thing here that we see is, is, is Stephen's character. You know, we met Stephen in the passage before this. We looked at it a couple Sundays ago, early uh, in this church in Jerusalem at the time. This is, this is all still taking place in Jerusalem. And, and in this church in Jerusalem at this time, the church was growing so quickly, so many new Christians, that the church was unable to care for some of the widows with, within the church. Some of the widows were being neglected, falling through the cracks. They weren't getting their daily distribution of food. And, and things like that. So the church in the previous passage appointed seven men to care for these widows. Stephen was one of the seven. The name Stephen means garland or, or crown in the Greek language. If you, if you would have competed uh, at the, the Olympic Games in, in the Roman Colosseum, you, you won the uh, women's hammer throw or something like that. Well, you would have been awarded with something called a Stephanos, a wreath or a crown. And it's Stephanos or Stephen, just, just such a great name for this man here because he will soon receive the ultimate crown. He will be the very first Christian martyr. But listen, Stephen does not suffer here because he was somehow not righteous or because he somehow did not have enough faith. No, Luke says four things here about Stephen's character and all of them are good. The first, thing, the first two things Luke says uh, about Stephen's character up in the previous passage, if you look right up in verse 5, the church was choosing these seven men to care for the widows, and the middle of verse 5 says this, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So, so the first thing about Stephen's character that we see here, this was a man full of faith. Stephen had a, a strong faith in Christ. It is something every Christian must, must have. You, you need faith. Uh, Jesus Christ, he died so that sinners like you and me might be forgiven of our sins. But, but in order to receive the forgiveness Christ purchased, the Bible says that you must believe. You must have a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, following Christ in faith, and, and you are forgiven of your sins. And Stephen, man, this guy was full of faith, Luke says. And I don't think he's just talking about an initial saving faith in Christ. No, no, this guy, Stephen, I think he had a deep faith, a faith that enabled him to walk as a Christian, a faith that enabled him to endure this persecution that is coming his way. 2 Corinthians 5 says that as Christians, we are not to walk by sight. We're not to walk just, just, just looking only at the visible things right, right in front of us, seeing only the people, the, the circumstances, the, the suffering. No, the Bible says that as Christians, we must walk by faith. 
By faith, we must look through the people, look through the suffering, and see the hand of God on the other side. By faith, we must believe that on the other side of our trials in this life is coming something very, uh, a, a lot, lot better than what we have in this life. And man, that was Stephen full of faith, saving faith, and also a faith that helped him to walk by faith through these trials. The second thing Luke says about Stephen's character here. It's also up in verse 5, if you look at it again, says this. He says, Stephen was a man full of faith, and he was also full of the Holy Spirit. You just stop and think about that. We've talked before about being filled with the Spirit. Every single Christian, the second you initially come to Christ in faith, the Bible says that you have been filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has now taken up residence within you. The Bible says that you have now been baptized with or baptized in the Holy Spirit. But as a Christian now, as someone who has already been filled with the Holy Spirit, well, the Bible indicates that you can be filled again, that you can be filled more with the Holy Spirit. It's like a balloon. When you first come to Christ, you are filled with the air of the Spirit. But like a balloon, you have the capacity to be filled more with the air or the wind of the Spirit. And we've seen this thing with the apostles in the book of Acts. They were filled initially with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But then Luke on several occasions has said that they were filled again. They were filled more with the Spirit or they were empowered by the Spirit again to, to perform a certain task. And, and Stephen, Luke says, was full of the Spirit. He was filled initially with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 with the other Christians, but Stephen has now been filled again with the Holy Spirit. He's been filled more with the Spirit. Stephen has now been empowered by the Spirit to do certain things, and one of the things he's been empowered to do is to undergo his persecution and his eventual death, which is coming. You know, I've heard a lot of Christians, um, and you may have heard things like this as well, where, where a Christian would say, you know, I, I, I just don't think I could ever endure martyrdom. I, I don't think I could do it. If you had a gun to my head and, and told me to reject Jesus, I, I think I would. Or, or I, 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 I don't think I could endure a terrible crisis, my, my spouse with terminal cancer, or, 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 or losing a child. I, I, I just don't have the grace for that. But here's the thing, until those things actually come your way, you don't need the grace for that. You don't have that today if you're not faced with those things, but please hear me on this. If you are a child of God, and if and when any of those things comes your way, your heavenly Father will be faithful to fill you with the Spirit to endure, to persevere through whatever comes your way. He will give you the grace you need, the Holy Spirit brooding over you and filling you with grace to persevere through whatever crisis you must face. And Stephen now, he was full of the Spirit. His faithful father had filled him with the Spirit, preparing him to meet what is coming in just a few minutes from this right here. He's ready. And the third thing about Stephen's character here, if you look at verse 8, we read it earlier. Luke says, And Stephen, full of grace. And just put it together, full of faith 
full, full of the Spirit and now full of grace. Stephen, like every single Christian, Stephen had received the grace of God. He had received God's unmerited favor through faith in Jesus. That's what happens when you're saved. You, you put out your faith in Jesus and you're then filled with the grace of God. It's actually the grace of God that helps you to believe in the first place. And Stephen had received the, the, the saving grace of God, the empowering grace of God. And listen, the grace of God working in Stephen, I believe the grace of God had turned Stephen into a very gracious man. That, that is probably what Luke was saying there with that phrase saying Stephen was full of grace. I think Luke, Luke was saying he was a gracious man. F.F. F. Bruce says it means that Stephen was kind. He, he was winsome in, in his manner. Other commentators suggest something like gentleness with Stephen. He was a gentle person like Jesus. Isn't it amazing that Jesus says about himself in the book of Matthew, I am lowly and I am gentle at heart. And he came to show us the Father, which means the Father is gentle at heart. And God's grace working in Stephen had turned him into a gentle man, I believe. John Wesley, he once said that One of the advantages of God's grace working in a man or woman's life, one of the advantages of God's grace in your life is that it will turn you into a gentleman or it will turn you into a gentlewoman, a gentle person. And Stephen was full of grace, kind. He was gentle. He was was a gracious man, I believe. And a final thing about Stephen's character here, if you look again at verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and full of power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. You've heard heard people say before, you're full of it, uh, in a way that's maybe not all that good. Uh, Well, Stephen was full of it in a really, really good way. You just connect those dots. He's, he's full of faith. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of grace. And now he's full of power, Luke says. And you know, this was just a, a fulfillment of one of Jesus' promises. Jesus promised back in Acts 1 that when the Holy Spirit initially came upon these early Christians, well, they would receive power. And man, they have. We've seen it all through the book of Acts. The apostles working all kinds of powerful signs and wonders. But for the first time now, we hear about power outside of the twelve apostles. A non-apostle here, Stephen, working great signs and wonders, working all of these miracles. Something the Spirit can still empower Christians today to do. The Holy Spirit hasn't died. His power has not died. He has not stopped empowering Christians to do powerful things. God can still sovereignly empower His people whenever He wants and wherever He wants to work miracles. That's why we pray for healings on Sunday mornings or throughout the week. And that's Luke's fourfold description of Stephen's character. Full of faith. Full of the Spirit full of grace, full of power. And, and listen, I do believe that Luke is, he, he wants to put Stephen up in front of us as an example for us to follow. 
You know, you may remember those old Nike commercials with Michael Jordan. I want to be, I want to be like Mike. Well, I think Luke in this passage would say, be like Stephen. Aspire in your Christian life. Aim, seek to be a Christian like Stephen. A man or a woman or, or, or a child full of faith. Full of faith, looking through the things of this life to the things that are eternal. Full of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. Full of God's grace, a, a gracious person and, and full of, of power. And seeking to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But man, he, here's the thing. If you do become more like Stephen in your Christian life, please don't expect then that you will receive only prosperity in this life. Because according to the prosperity gospel, which is preached all over the TV now today, according to the prosperity gospel, Stephen should have been prosperous for many, many years. He should have been healthy, wealthy, lived a life of luxury, lived a life of ease, a lifetime of happiness for many, many years. After all, Stephen was a righteous man. That is Luke's overwhelming testimony right here. And and Stephen had plenty of faith, full of enough faith to work great miracles. But Stephen does not receive here a new jet plane for his ministry. He does not receive here a second home overlooking the ocean. No, what does Stephen get? He gets his skull crushed. A righteous man, full of more faith than any prosperity gospel preacher has ever had, and he is executed. A few minutes from this right here. And why? Well, because the righteous suffer in this life. That is just the way it is. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. And we now see the start of Stephen's suffering. First, we see here his character. It's just a righteous character. But the second thing follows right on the heels of that, his suffering. A very unrighteous suffering. If you look again at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. In Israel at this time, there were, there were local synagogues, local places of worship in, in all the little towns around Israel, basically little worship centers. Each of the synagogues had a, 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 a defined leadership. They had worship services there with prayers and scriptures, some teaching. Jesus had taught at many synagogues. And the people in one of Jerusalem's synagogues, they now begin to rise up and debate with Stephen. There's several groups of Jews within this synagogue, all groups from different countries or, or, or all Jews that had been raised with a Greek background, not a Hebrew-Israeli background, but they'd been raised with more of a Greek background. This was a Hellenist, um, it would have been called a Hellenist synagogue here. And the first group Luke mentions there, the freedmen, they had been slaves at one point in Rome. Taken into slavery by General Pompey, uh, later released, and after years in Rome, these Jews had returned 
to Israel, the freedmen. The Cyrenians were Jews from North Africa. Uh, You may remember uh, at at Jesus' death, a man, Simon from Cyrene, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross. He was a Jew from North Africa who had come to Israel for the Passover, and and he was forced to carry Jesus' cross. Simon the Cyrene may very well have attended this synagogue when he was in Israel. Alexandrians, they were Jews from Egypt, and, and Luke also mentions here Jews from Cilicia and Asia in this synagogue. So a Hellenist kind of Greek background synagogue. And Stephen was also a Hellenist raised with a Greek background as we saw in the previous passage. And Stephen had apparently now been going to his Hellenist friends and he'd been preaching to them about Christ. It's very possible that Stephen, before he became a Christian, was actually connected to this synagogue. And now he's going back to the synagogue and he's telling his friends and his family members about Jesus Christ. But these Jews rise up and argue. And listen, little side note here. It is very possible that someone very significant was in this Jewish crowd now debating with Stephen. Because Luke says that Jews from Cilicia we're here. And there was a town in the province of Cilicia called Tarsus, the hometown of Saul, who will eventually become an Acts the Apostle Paul. Saul was from Cilicia. And Saul at this time, not yet a Christian, he had traveled from Cilicia to Jerusalem. And he was now training to be a Pharisee under the rabbi Gamaliel. So it is very, very possible that Saul attended this very synagogue. How many Cilician synagogues were in Jerusalem at this time? It is very possible that Paul had been there listening to Stephen talk about Christ. And Saul, along with the other Jews, now rises up and begins to debate and begins to argue with Stephen. Doesn't that just sound like a pre-Christian Paul (laughs) arguing with anyone and everyone who doesn't think like him? We don't know if Saul was there. Could have been. Regardless, these Jews who were there, they're arguing and they're losing. Uh, If you look at verse 10 as they argue with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. (laughs) they couldn't withstand they couldn't contradict they couldn't beat him in an argument and this was just what jesus had promised jesus earlier he had said this to his disciples in luke 21 verse 12 there it is they will lay their hands on you jesus said to his disciples and they will persecute you they will deliver you up to the synagogues but I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And Jesus now working through the Holy Spirit, he is giving Stephen on the spot here a mouth and a wisdom which nobody here can withstand or contradict. So what do they do? They resort to violence, which is what we often do. My older brother when I, was, when I was little, there was no way I could out-debate that guy. 
I mean, my word. He gets up into high school. He's a national merit finalist. He was smart as could be. He could argue me under the rug on every single subject. So when I got bigger, I just tried to beat him up. (laughs) Not physically fighting him, uh, except for one brawl in the backyard, uh, but trying to beat him up in every single sport we played. If you can't beat him up verbally, just beat him up physically. And that is what this synagogue mob now resorts to with Stephen. They're so frustrated, and now they're going to resort to violence. If you look at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men. Here in the synagogue, they're, they're doing this. Instigating men now who, who say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they, probably these people who are talking these things about Stephen, they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And just start here with some kind of some trumped up charges against Stephen secretly instigating some men, probably bribing them, probably paying them to, to speak false things about Stephen in, in this, this synagogue, saying that Stephen had blasphemed, that he'd insulted both God and Moses, the prophet who'd received the Old Testament law from God. And man, listen, in, in synagogues like this back then, it was almost as bad to blaspheme Moses as it was to blaspheme God Josephus, Jewish historian back in in these times, he wrote this about the synagogue leaders at this time. He said, what they most of all honor after God himself is the name of their legislator or lawgiver, Moses, whom if anyone blaspheme, he is punished capitally. So they have charged Stephen with a capital offense, blaspheming both God and Moses. And, And with these charges, the people, Luke says, and the Jewish leaders, they're just now stirred up. And, and you know how it is. You, you, you get whipped into a frenzy. It's like this, it's like this mob violence. And Molly and I like to watch nature documentaries. I'm sorry, at this point in my life, that is uh, very exciting for me. Uh, have you ever seen a shark feeding frenzy before? There is blood in the water and the sharks just, they, they, they just go nuts out of their minds a little bit uh, like my kids at dinner. And, and this was now a feeding frenzy here uh, with all of these leaders. They come upon Stephen, Luke says. They, they seize him. The same Greek word that's in the Bible describing a demon seizing a person. They, they, they forcibly grab him and, and they drag him off to the council. The Sanhedrin, the, the, the largest, uh, highest court in Israel. Saul might have been one of the men who charged him, who grabbed him, who helped drag him off. Saul will be there later at Stephen's death. He could have been there right now taking him to the Sanhedrin. We don't know. But once they get to the Sanhedrin, this court of 71 highest men in, in Israel, verse 13 says they now set up more false witnesses to testify against Stephen in this official court. Have you ever been falsely accused in your life? Have you? Somebody accuses you of something you did not do? Your boss accuses you of stealing something, or or your spouse accuses you, or or something like that? That does not feel good. You get it on social media, maybe? That does, does not feel good. And that's Stephen right here. 
These 71 men, false accusations being leveled against him. But when you step back and look at this, it's just the same stuff that happened to Jesus just a few months earlier. Exactly the same. These same leaders charged Jesus with blasphemy. They dragged him before the same court. They set up false witnesses to lie against him. And they killed him. And Stephen has now started down that exact same path. And these false witnesses now at this trial, they are are accusing this man, Stephen, on two main points. They're accusing him of speaking against the Old Testament temple and Old Testament law. If you look at verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law, the Old Testament law. For we have heard Stephen say, That this Jesus of Nazareth he's talking about will destroy this place, this temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, the law. They've accused Stephen of speaking against temple and law. This was a serious double accusation because nothing was more sacred to the Jews than their temple and their law. That, that temple back in Jerusalem, that, that building there, hundreds of years earlier, it had been given to the Jews by God himself. It had been designed by King David. It had been built by King Solomon. That was the place on earth where, where God had chosen to dwell, to, to manifest his glory, his presence. That was the place where the Jews could meet with God at the temple. And man, that Old Testament law, the, the, the Ten Commandments and other laws, they'd also been given to the Jews by God. Moses receiving those laws on Mount Sinai. That temple was God's holy place. That law was God's holy word. And to speak against either of those was to speak against God himself. And they've charged Stephen with both, a double blasphemy. And here's the thing. You know, Stephen, at times, he probably had spoken about both the temple and the law. He probably had said some things that, 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 that these leaders did not like. Because Stephen knew something. He knew that with the, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, some things had changed concerning the temple and the law. Stephen knew that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of both the temple and the law. You know, both of those things, when they were given hundreds of years earlier, both of those things just ultimately pointed forward to a Savior to come who would be the ultimate fulfillment of both temple and law. Jesus Christ, He was the true and better temple. For, for a time in the Old Testament days, God, God had lived. He had manifested His presence, His glory in that physical building, the temple in, in Jerusalem, the place where the Jews could, could meet with God. But that was just a foreshadowing of what God would do in the future when He would one day live. God would one day live. God would manifest His presence, His glory in a physical body. The body of His own Son. God now living in human Flesh, the place where people all over the world could now meet with God. Do you want to meet with God? Well, you don't have to go find some temple building in Jerusalem. Go to Christ in faith. 
And if you go to Christ, you will meet with God, God in human flesh. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 6. He said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And do you reckon that Stephen in the synagogue might have said something like that? Something greater than the temple is here? Very well could have. Jesus said at one point, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And the Jews thought he was speaking of the physical temple in Israel and he was speaking of his own body. Destroy this temple and it will be raised up again. Do you think Stephen might have said something like that in the synagogue? Well, you either receive that in faith or those, those are fighting words uh, to, to, to a Jew. Jesus, the Old Testament, the ultimate fulfillment of that Old Testament temple. And Jesus is also the fulfillment of that Old Testament law. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the good news for us is that Jesus did fulfill them. Jesus, Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. Jesus obeyed every single moral law in the Old Testament, including every Ten Commandment. He offered up to God the Father a perfect obedience because we had all failed to obey God's moral law. Well, but then Jesus fulfilled every sacrificial law in the Old Testament. Offered himself on the cross as a spotless, innocent, sacrificial lamb to, to pay for the sin of everyone who would trust in him. Jesus fulfilled every law. His, his, his final words on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. I have fulfilled every last bit of it. Which means you don't have to fulfill the law in order to enter God's kingdom. Jesus did it in your place. And you receive him by faith, and you've entered the kingdom of God. Do you think Stephen might have said something like that in the synagogue? About Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of both temple and law. He had preached those things, I'm sure, to these Jews. But listen, Jesus, or Stephen, when he said those things, he wasn't preaching against the temple and law. He was honoring the temple and law. He was putting the temple and law in their rightful God-given places as precursors, as foreshadowings of Jesus to come. John Stott says, says this, he says, Jesus was and is himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of the law. Moreover, for Stephen to affirm that both temple and law pointed forward to Jesus are now fulfilled in Jesus, that's not to denigrate the temple and law, that's not to demean them, but to magnify their importance. That's why they were given by God to lead to Christ, to point to Christ. And Stephen was honoring both temple and law by showing how they pointed to Christ. But man, these Jews in this synagogue, they don't yet have spiritual ears to hear the truth that Stephen's preaching. They charge him with blasphemy here and, and take him in false accusations in the Sanhedrin. And man, on this very day, as we'll see next week, just a few minutes after the sham of a trial here, Stephen will be killed. The righteous will suffer. That's first Stephen's character. Second, his suffering. But the third thing we see here is Stephen's vindication. 
If you look at verse 15, after these men accuse Stephen, they're waiting for his response. And Luke says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. (laughs) Just pause. Picture it. Catch the emotion. Catch it. What, 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 what in the world? We, we have no idea what was going on there. But Luke is, is indicating somehow that, that Stephen's face here had some sort of radiance. Lighter, a, a, a glow like an angel. And, and what was going on there with his face all of a sudden... I think one thing that was going on there, I think this was God's way of declaring Stephen innocent. It's God's, God's way of saying, this man is my faithful servant. He is righteous. And he has spoken truth to you here in this council. And listen, God, you just got to love him. It's a very ironic type of vindication from God right here. Because there is only one other human being in the Bible other than Christ whose face was said to shine like an angel. You know who it was? Moses. When he received God's law on Mount Sinai, his face shining, the Bible says. And these people just accused Stephen of blaspheming Moses. And God now gives Stephen a face just like Moses. And I think it's God's way of saying what Stephen has said is true. What he has said about Jesus Christ is true. Jesus is not ultimately against the temple, not ultimately against the law of Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of both the temple and law. And man, just right here, God has given Stephen just a tiny bit of vindication, a little God-given evidence that Stephen is innocent. Character, suffering, vindication. And, and, and you stop and, and you look at that passage there in its entirety. According to the prosperity gospel teaching, Stephen should have received prosperity from God. A righteous man This is the Bible's testimony here. Even a little evidence right at the end. God saying this man is innocent. A man full of faith. Luke says, this man right here, he fits all the necessary prosperity gospel standards. If anyone should have received prosperity from God in this life, according to the prosperity gospel, Health, wealth, luxury, ease, a lifetime of happiness. It was this man right here. And in just a matter of minutes now, his body will be obliterated. His body will be crushed. Why? Because the righteous don't always prosper in this life. The righteous do not always prosper in this life. They do not always prosper in this life. God does not want all of His people to be prosperous in a worldly sense in this life. 
God does not want all of his people to be rich. He does not want all of his people to be perfectly healthy all the time. He does not want all of his people to live a life of ease and luxury and happiness all of the time. He does not. It seems like he would. I get it. But that's not what the Bible says. No, the Bible says very clearly that the righteous in this life, those who have a true and living faith in Christ, those diligently seeking to follow Christ, those who love Christ, those who are loved by Christ, the righteous will suffer. That is biblical truth. The righteous will suffer. Now in the next life, in heaven the righteous will prosper. The Bible says that for a believer, death is great gain. For Stephen the second his eyelids closed in death, it was great gain for that man. He could have said at that point, once he entered Christ's presence, I never sacrificed a thing. Because this is so much better than anything I ever had. But in this life, the righteous suffer. We won't always know why. So many Bible writers, they cry out, why God? Why do the righteous suffer? So if you feel like that, welcome to the Bible. That's the heart of a believer at times. Why God? Why? It doesn't make sense for me to suffer. Because we have finite views of things. We only see things according to this life. And God sees infinitely according to eternity. And he does things in this little dot of a life that don't make sense. But they will when we get to the long, never-ending line of eternity. But for now, the heart says, why, God? Why, why do we suffer? Why, God, does it look like the, 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 the wicked prosper? Why, God? You know, we do know one reason. Because when the righteous suffer in martyrdom and things like that, well, the gospel message about Christ spreads. And it spreads powerfully through the suffering of Christians. Man, in the book of Acts here, we, 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 we will see it. At the start of this book, in chapter 1, Jesus said these Christians here, He said, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, and then you will be my witnesses out in Judea and Samaria, and then you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And at this point in the book, they've not left Jerusalem. But they will when Stephen is killed. They will scatter everywhere, taking the message of Christ with them. That's the saying from Tertullian. We've looked at it a couple times, early Christian. He said this. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Man, just get that into your bloodstream. I don't know why. God advances the gospel through suffering. His people. That's one reason why Christians... Suffer. We may never know all the other reasons why God has ordained, sovereignly decreed that we would suffer. Please just know that He has decreed that. 1 Thessalonians 3 3, we are destined, Paul says, we, we are ordained for afflictions. It's just the way it is. 
So let me apply it and, and just bring it home very quickly. The next time you feel it, Christian, man, the, the, the next time you feel the pain, you, you, you feel the hurt, you feel the affliction, you feel the loss in some way, grieving, you, you feel the persecution, you, you may even feel the martyrdom. Can I please ask you, don't instantly then say, oh, God must be punishing me for some sin, for, for my lack of faith. If that's the way you think, then the day you die, you're going to be sitting in shame, thinking God is punishing you for something you did. Yes, God can discipline his people through suffering in this life. He can show us sin. So if you're suffering, ask God, are you showing me something in my heart? But man, please don't jump directly to that conclusion. I'm suffering, so I must not be righteous or I must not have enough faith. That is prosperity gospel and it stinks. It's simply not true. The true gospel, the Bible says, the righteous will suffer. That was the path Jesus took. The ultimate righteous sufferer, suffering so that you and I might have eternal life. And listen, if you are a Christ follower, then you will follow him down that same path to some degree. The Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering for Christ and for his people. So be prepared for it. Arm your mind. Peter says, arm your mind with this thinking since Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm your mind with the same thinking that you will also suffer in the flesh. But God will vindicate his people. He will vindicate his people. It's just a matter of time before it will be declared to this entire universe that you are righteous through faith in Christ Jesus. It would just be a matter of time before you exalted out of all the suffering of this life and you enter the kingdom of heaven where you will be prosperous for all eternity. No more pain. So man, trust God. Whatever it is you're suffering through right now, trust Him, trust Him, and God will give you the grace necessary to endure your suffering. Lord God, bless you. We bless you for the truth of your word. We bless you, Lord God, for your help in, in, in just walking through this life. Lord, we just bless you. Father, it's so easy to think that you would just always lavish us with comfortable, easy things. It's just a subtle message, so easy for us to, to believe that. And yet, your scripture says that through the hands of a loving God, we will at times receive great suffering. Many times for reasons we don't understand. Father, give us faith just to believe your word. Give us faith to hang, hang on in suffering. Give us faith, Lord, to look through the suffering to the eternal things on the other side of the suffering. We thank you, Father, that in Christ, every true believer will one day prosper in your presence with eternal joy forever. We bless you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.